in the book of Daniel, chapter number one. Do you have your Bible? Hold it up in the air if you have it with you today. Let me see if you're still bringing your Bible and checking on the rev here. Okay, thank you. Daniel chapter one in your Bible, if you will find it. Last week, the entire message was on Babylon, on the culture, the background, the history, and the philosophy of Babylon, because Babylon, second to the city of Jerusalem itself, is the, the second most often mentioned city in the Scripture. And it's prominent throughout, beginning in Genesis chapter 11. And it, you go to the book of Revelation chapter 18, the, almost the last chapter in the Bible, and it's talking about the destruction of Babylon when the Lord returns at the end of time, at the end of the tribulation period. So if you don't understand Babylon you don't understand many areas of Scripture. Such an important, important teaching. And I gave you the background because coming up here now, our family camp, and we're talking about the Babylonian culture. We're talking about equipping our children especially to deal with Babylon and its thinking, its way of life, if you will. Now, if you'll stand with me, please, as we read God's Word, Daniel's book, Daniel's Prophecy, Chapter number one, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, and three friends, colleagues of his, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. He changed their names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Key verse, key passage text here. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Thank you, and you may be seated. <clears throat> Let me set the time here. It's the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim was the very last king of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. He was a very weak king. 
And it was during his time, of course, that the nation fell. It fell when Nebuchadnezzar led his Babylonian army to Jerusalem, and he laid siege to the city. He surrounded the city with his vast armies, and his idea was to starve them out, to not allow people to come in or food or water or anything that would help them in their daily life. The year was 605 B.C. After the walls were breached by Nebuchadnezzar and his army, every house was burned, according to Josephus' account. Josephus was the most respected Jewish historian. Every house was burned and looted. Thousands upon thousands of women were raped. Tens of thousands of men were killed. In fact, he says their, their bodies were stacked up like wood and put on cor- carts and carried out to be burned. There were too many of them to be able to even bury them. The temple, which was the jewel of the nation of Israel, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple was burned and sacked and looted. The vessels of worship were taken, and Nebuchadnezzar took part of them up to Jerusalem and used them in the worship of his pagan gods. It was a calamity of calamities, a day like no Jew had ever seen in all of their history. Jewish people still date certain things from the captivity and talk about it frequently today. Why did this happen to God's people? Well, look in verse number two, and I want you to see something that's startling if you don't just read through it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his, that would be Nebuchadnezzar's hand. What we see here is the sovereignty of God operating. What we see here is God allowing a very, very wicked nation to come in and harass his own people, to bring judgment upon his own people. In other words, the Babylonians were the judgment of God upon a far more righteous people than they, but God permitted it. That's a pretty startling statement, isn't it? But it says clearly, verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. After the city and the nation fell, there were three massive deportations of people carried captive up into Babylon, and the captivity lasted for 70 years. Then the new king at that point over that region, it actually changed countries. It was now Persia. But that king allowed the Jews to go back home to their nation. But for 70 years, these Jews lived there, eight or 900 miles removed from their land in what we call the Babylonian captivity. And there were three different deportations, three different waves of people that were carried captive up to Babylon. The first wave, according to 2 Kings chapter 24, consisted of 10,000 people. And the 10,000 people were the 10,000 leaders of the nation. They were the royal family. They were the the, uh, nobles, the princes. They were the intelligentsia. They were the leaders among the priests and the army and so on, they were all carried away. And among them was a young man who wrote this book, and his name is Daniel. Daniel at that time was a young man 
probably in his late teens. He was probably 17, 18, 19 years old. And these were the sharpest of the sharp, the best of the best. These were the kids with the highest SAT scores. These were the kids who had all kinds of assets going for them. In verse number 3, you see that Daniel was a descendant of King Hezekiah, the last of the very godly kings of Judah. But now we see that uh, his family is being carried away captive, of course. Nebuchadnezzar's plan was to take these young people and to thoroughly indoctrinate them into the culture of Babylon and later to send them back to Babylon so that they could rule over the country for him, that he would, he would in essence, brainwash them, and they would become so Babylonianized, if you'll let me use a term like that, that they would rule for him. They would be more loyal to him than even their native land. The plan never really materialized because the nation fell, Babylon fell, before it could be carried out. In verse number four, you have a description of Daniel. And I want you to notice it with me. Look in your Bible. Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored. Well-favored has the idea of being handsome. Skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge. In other words, not only were they handsome, not only was Daniel handsome, but he was intelligent. He was quick to learn. And such as had ability to stand in the king's palace, he would have had poise he would have been a young man who, when the king would have had guests into his palace and Daniel was helping him with whatever event it might be, that he would have made the king proud. He had culture. He had class, if you will. He is a sharp young man here. And so he's carried eight, 900 miles away from home to that great city of the ancient world, Babylon, a wicked, wicked culture. And I think that Daniel experienced culture shock like none of us could ever imagine. What do I mean when I say culture shock? It's a term we use, but it's a real thing. Do you know that? Do you know that psychologists would identify culture shock as being a valid condition for a human being and that uh, the culture shock involves feelings of isolation, separation, uh, feelings of rejection from the people, the natives there in the country. It, culture shock produces depression when people go through color, culture shock. They are depressed. Our missionaries will tell you when they go into another country and they experience culture shock that one of the feelings is this extreme isolation and a sense of rejection that you don't really understand what the people are saying, what's going on, and it leaves you in, a, in sort of a state of depression. They tell me that people can even become disoriented and lose a little bit of touch with the environment around them when they're in the bottom of the trough of, uh, of culture shock. And so here's this young man raised in this very, very traditional Jewish culture who had biblical morality and biblical values. And boy, is he in for a shock when he goes to this big city of Babylon because Instead of one, the worship of one God, there's pluralism. There are many different religions all vying for the hearts and minds of the people. And uh, over in Babylon, they accept immorality. They expect people to be immoral. There's no 
moral code at all in Babylon. And not only are they immoral, they worship these strange gods, these pagan gods, these gods whose names he cannot even pronounce. And everything in his culture is trying to suck him down morally and spiritually and emotionally and psychologically. They place him in a three-year training program, according to verse number five, and they're going to uh, re-educate him. They're going to make him into a Babylonian, into a Chaldean, the, names of the, the name of the people, that, uh, the, the natives of Babylon. And so Daniel here is isolated now from his native land. Actually, what happens to Daniel, Daniel at this point is the classic uh, prototype, the classic example of what brainwashing would be. What they call brainwashing today is what Daniel had to experience here. For example, he's isolated from his native land and, and his family. They changed his identity. They gave him a completely new name. He's, he no longer answers when anybody says Daniel. Nobody calls him Daniel. He's Belteshazzar. Daniel, his name reminded him of God, Almighty God, because it means God is my judge. But now he has a new name, and it's the name of some pagan god he never heard of and he doesn't believe in. They attempted to change his religion. They didn't do it, but they certainly tried, as you read the story. They changed his language, and no longer does he speak his native Hebrew, with which he's comfortable now. He's struggling to speak the language of the Chaldeans. And they re-educate him. Look in verse number four, what the plan was for these men that they would take them and retrain them in science and understanding and wisdom and knowledge and all the arts of Babylon, some of them the dark, dark arts as well as the uh, respected arts. And so they re-educated him. He is involved in the learning of the Chaldeans for three years, like our college course. We know that this changes a man. Education changes people more than any other single thing. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And now they're working on his head. They're working on his heart. They're going to change him so that someday he can go back to Jerusalem and he can rule for Nebuchadnezzar and be one of his key figures. They even tried to change his diet. And no longer was he eating the simple foods of the Hebrews now these sumptuous meals are being delivered into his care or into his presence, and he has an opportunity to eat the finest food that Babylon can offer him. And there's one more thing. They probably made him a eunuch. By that I mean they emasculated him. They castrated him, to use a crude term for us in the church service. Now, we don't know that for sure. The Bible doesn't explicitly say that, but in Isaiah chapter 39 and verse 7, Isaiah is prophesying what's going to happen to the Jews when they go up to Babylon, and he says, and the king's sons will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So it certainly sounds like he was made a eunuch. He reported to the prince of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz, it says that there in verse number what, in verse number three or so, that his immediate supervisor and boss was 
Ashpenaz, the prince or the head of the eunuchs. And in those days, every one of those pagan kings had a big, they had hundreds of eunuchs that served them. They wanted their attention totally upon serving the king. They didn't want them thinking about women at all. And so Daniel's entire world is turned completely upside down here in just a very brief period of time. He's isolated from his family. He is introduced and he's having to speak a new language. His identity has been changed. His religion, they've attempted to change it. They've changed, they've re-educated him in all the culture and language and philosophy of Babylon. They've tried to change his diet. They've changed his sexuality in all probability. Nobody ever had to face the cultural shock that this young, latter teen, uh, young Jewish boy would have had to face. His world is turned completely upside down. Every cherished value, every cherished moral, every single belief that he's grown up all of his life to believe in fully with all of his heart, now it's pulled away from him. Culture shock. Kind of like going to the university in America today. Kind of like going out and living on your own for the very first time away from home when you grew up at the Baptist temple and graduated from the Christian school. And the whole world is jerked out from under you for the first time. And here's what I believe. I tried to write in one sentence. I sat down and thought about this quite a bit. How can I say in one sentence, in three minutes, one minute, 30 seconds, how can I say what the book of Daniel is about? And I think I got it now down to about 10 seconds or less. Here's the book of Daniel in one sentence. Daniel couldn't change Babylon, but he wouldn't allow Babylon to change him. Daniel couldn't change Babylon, but he wouldn't let Babylon change him. What do we do when our most deeply held biblical beliefs come into conflict with the culture around us? You see, there's some things I know about Daniel the Bible doesn't say. I will, as the country boy said, I'll guarantee you that Daniel grew up in a godly home, that somebody put into this young man values and beliefs and convictions. Somebody had worked on him throughout his growing up years, and this young man knew God. He knew what he believed about God. He was absolutely committed to his belief about the Lord. Daniel, somebody did a good job with this young man. And he couldn't change Babylon. I don't know that he even tried. But he wouldn't let Babylon change him. So what do we do in a culture? Now, we're not in as bad a shape as Daniel was. But you know what? I have lived through such cultural change in America that it's tantamount to cultural shock in some ways. I grew up in a little rural area of West Virginia, 
And my mom and my dad was a Baptist preacher. My mom was a godly woman. And by the time I can have much remembrance, it was the 50s. And the 50s was sort of a, a calm, it's the, you know, now people look back and think it was a, a wonderful time of family values. It had its problems, but that's when I was a little boy. And then in the 60s, all the protests started and the drugs came in. And uh, then in the 70s, we had scandal in the country with Nixon was impeached and driven out of office and all kinds of turbulence was going on in the United States. And then in the 80s, Ronald Reagan came in and seemed like we had sort of a brief reprieve. And then the 90s, the wall came down. But then we had another period of scandals. And then in 2000, we barely get into the century and 9-11 happens, and they say the world will never be the same, and I don't think it will. 3,000 of our fellow citizens killed in one hour in New York City. The symbol of capitalism and materialism is destroyed in one hour. And since then, we've watched all kinds of things. If I got on one of them, it'd take me for the rest of the time, so I won't. The massive, massive, massive change. And it's affected you. It's affected me. It's affected every one of us. We just don't realize how much it has affected us because it happens sort of slowly and imperceptibly, and we don't have a benchmark to compare it with. I wish somehow it were possible that I could uh, say, I could hit a button on some measuring device, and it says, here you are now, and then a year from now, hit the button again and see where I've changed. But we don't have that kind of device, do we? Now, the Lord knows, but you and I don't know. But let me tell you, I say it to you lovingly, but you are supremely naive if you think what is happening in this culture around you is not working on you every day of your life. What do we do when our biblical values conflict with culture? Look in verse number 8. Well, we decide beforehand what we really believe. If you try to figure it out when you get in the army in basic training, it's too late. The pressure's on. If you try to decide what you believe when you enroll in college, then it's too late. You better decide before you get there. When you go off for the first time and you're alone in the big city and you have your first job, you better decide before you get there what you believe or it'll be too late. Here's what it says about Daniel. He purposed in his heart. Ah, stop and think about that phrase for a moment. He purposed in his heart. In other words, he made a conscious, thoughtful, intentional choice that when they bring that food out, I'm not going to eat it. I can't eat it. Why couldn't he eat it? Because the dietary laws in the Torah for a Hebrew wouldn't allow him to eat many of those foods. And secondly, that food had been offered to a pagan god, so it was ceremonially unclean to a Jew. He could never put one bite of that food in his mouth. And here's the thing. 
his biblical beliefs, which included those dietary laws in the Old Testament there, came into conflict with his culture. But here's the thing that, that dawned on me is, well, was that a hill to die on? On your food? On diet? I mean, I understand if they've been wanting him to marry a pagan woman or to commit adultery or to steal. That'd be a big thing, but I mean, they're going to, they're serving him. They're offering him the very best food that can be cooked on the planet. The food from the king's table. It's a little deal, isn't it? Why are you going to fuss about that? I mean, after all, they don't know what the Mosaic dietary laws are about. It says it came from the king's table there. Look at it. Man, it was de- delicious, and it was nutritious, and it, but it was ceremonially unclean. Man, can you imagine these four Hebrew boys from Jerusalem just landing in Babylon, they put them in this three-year program, and they start bringing out the king's food. Man, these meats heaped up on this silver platter. The steam is coming up from them. They smell that. Mm -hmm. And the vegetables and the fruits and the breads. Oh, that pastry chef back there, he knows what he's doing. And all these desserts and the wines and everything. And these four growing boys are sitting there and all that's coming out of the kitchen. And they say, just some vegetables and water, sir. Just some pulse. That just means vegetables, fresh vegetables, garden vegetables. We're not going to eat all that other stuff. We can't do it. Is that a hill to die on? Is that a big enough issue that you would risk your life because in refusing to eat according to the king's instructions, they were risking their life? I think we would pass that off as being a little thing. It isn't big enough to possibly die over. May I ask you a real pointed question? I hear people say all the time, well, that's not a big thing. Well, what is the big thing for you? What is the big thing? What is the deal that's a big enough deal that you'd go to jail for? What is the deal that's a big enough deal that you would go, um, that you'd lose your job over? See, we've made everything the little hill. I'm not going to die on that one. And consequently today, we never purposed in our heart Here's the line. I've drawn the line. I won't step over. Thank God there are people who will. Have you ever heard of Israel Falau? You probably haven't. Israel Falau is the number one rugby player in the Australian Union down in Australia. He is what Tom Brady is in America today, or LeBron James, number one in the athletic field. He just signed a $4 million contract, $4 million Australian dollars, which is big, big, big money down there for an athlete. He signed a four-year contract, to, uh, a contract to play for $4 million next year with the rugby team that he's a member of. 
But Israel Folau is a dedicated born-again Christian. And you know what he did? He got on social media. He's a witness, a flaming witness for the Lord. He got on social media, and he posted a, he posted a notice on there, and he said, warning to all drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, fornicators, liars, thieves, atheists, and idolaters. I mean, he took the whole world in, didn't he? He, he, he wasn't discriminating. <laughs> he said, hell is awaiting you. Repent, because Jesus loves you, and he wants to save you. You know what? They found out about it, and they killed his contract. He lost $4 million. He's without a job. He's not going to play this year in Australia at this point. His hill to die on was, you're not going to silence my witness. You're not going to silence me. In fact, he wrote this. I know this may be difficult for many of you to understand, but I am nothing if I'm unable to share the word of the Bible with my fellow men. Now, that... That's the spirit of Daniel. I can't, I think, what would I do if I were in that position? Oh, I pray that I would have those kinds of convictions about it. Daniel had convictions that God's word was true. Do we really? He had convictions that he had made a commitment he could not break because it was a commitment to God. And he said, I know what it is to have a clean conscience, and I won't sell my clean conscience for anything the world has. So what did he do? In verses 5, he went to Ashpenaz, who was his authority. He didn't have a hunger strike. He didn't do the stuff people do today to show their resentments and rebellions. He basically went to his authority, and he said, would you give me a 10-day trial? And if at the end of 10 days we're not healthier than the people who are eating all that rich food, then uh, we'll talk about it then. And in verse number 20, it says that he was 10 times better, 10 times better. Now, you know what? That didn't happen because of the food. That was the intervention of God. God blessed those four young men, and God said to them, I'm going to bless you because you took that stand for me. Now, things don't always work out like that when people take a stand. I don't know what will happen to Israel Folau, and, I don't know, and, and there were other martyrs that went to the lines, of course. But I know this, that in Daniel's mind, it was a sealed deal. No matter what had happened, he wouldn't change. He, 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 uh, he proved that later on. Now, let me give you four options today. I want you to maybe write these down. What are your options when it comes to dealing with a pagan culture that would just suck all the spirituality, all of the Christianity, all the convictions, all of the morality and godliness that you have in you, because believe me, this culture is doing that with many people today. What are your options? How does a Christian stand in the midst of that kind of cultural pressure today? Number one, well, you can condone it. That's the first option. 
You can condone the culture around you. You can say, you know what? I'll just adapt. Daniel said, I'm in Babylon. My mom and dad are in all probability dead. They're not here. Nobody will know. I just go ahead and do what I want to do. I can just adapt. I'll just become one of them. I'll accept Babylon's morals and values, and, 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 and I will accept Babylon's uh, uh, belief system and their gods. He could have said, you know, I'm in. I can't let this opportunity pass, man. The king's getting ready to make me a significant person here. This is a big promotion for this Jewish boy. If I don't comply, why, I'll just die as a common slave somewhere. I can't let this kind of opportunity pass me by, no matter if it does violate my conscience. He could condone it. Number two, he could compromise with it. Second option, he could compromise. He could reason like this. This is a way I think we reason in our culture. You know what? The Babylonians do have some good ideas. And if I meet them halfway, they'll see that I'm a reasonable person, and uh, they, will, they will be open to accept my ideas. But, man, if I'm hard-line and inflexible and tell them, no, I'm not going to eat that food, you, that food, you know what? Why, they'll never, they'll write me off. They'll say, you're a fanatic, Daniel. He could have compromised. Many Christians are compromising today. Many churches are, common, are, are, are compromising. Many, many whole denominations have compromised. We got all these issues today facing us, abortion and all these LGBT philosophies and issue of truth itself. Is there any absolutes anymore? issue of worship. How important is it to gather and worship God? What about the Sabbath and our duties to worship God one day a week? All these things are up in the air and 10,000 more. I'm just quoting off the top of my head. All those issues are before us today. Do we stand like Daniel did? Or do we say, you know, well, I understand. Times are changing. Things are different. I can't let these opportunities pass. Third thing he could do, he could just condemn the culture. He could just rail against it. He could just rant and rail and carry on. He could pound his Bible and denounce Babylon and everybody in it. But they probably wouldn't have listened to him after that, would they? And lastly, he could... And this is what he did. He confronted his culture, but he did it with the right spirit. He confronted the culture. He spoke the truth in love. He spoke the truth in love. Boy, I pray often that God will help me to do that. I don't want to come off as the angry man who's against the culture, condemning the culture as wicked as it is. I want to come across as the man who is filled with God's Spirit, who speaks the truth, but who does it with love, who does it with kindness, with grace, with dignity. It's not our job to tear people down. We're never going to 
win pe the people that the Lord wants us to win by tearing others down. But neither can we compromise and give away the truth of God's Word. Now listen, hear me well on this. To confront the culture, there's two or three things you've got to have really inside you. And I don't know how many Christians understand that today, so you may want to write these down. First of all, to confront the culture, you have to really believe something. You have to believe it with every fiber of your being. You have to really believe this is what the truth, this, this is the truth of God. Number two, you have to know why you believe it. You have to know why you believe it. We put a big emphasis here on apologetics, that we not only say we believe the Christian faith, but we also can defend the Christian faith. We have a rational, logical basis for why we believe what we believe. To confront the culture, people will never confront the culture until they, number one, really believe something. Number two, they know why they believe it. And number three, and maybe this is the most important, we've got to believe deep in our hearts that whatever it is that we believe is more valuable to us in the long run than any gain we could have by denying it. Let me say it again. If we're going to stand alone, we must believe that what God's Word reveals is more valuable than anything we could gain by accommodating it to the world around us. So Daniel stood. He stood alone. I believe Daniel knew that God is sovereign and that God was working. And when the nation was overthrown, there was God's fingerprints on that. That was judgment for the sins and idolatry of the nation. And when he went and made his request, God was working in the heart, and uh, they allowed him to eat his pulse and go through his trial and prove that he could be healthy and intelligent and eat a Jewish diet. You see, I say it again, don't miss it. Daniel couldn't change Babylon, but he wouldn't let Babylon change him. That's the book of Daniel. Bow your head with me, if you will, please.